Welcome to episode 104 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're chatting with Andrew Warner, founder of Mixergy.com and host of the Mixergy podcast. So, Andrew, hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get started, I thought it'd be very helpful if you could give a brief overview of Mixergy. You know, and actually, before I even talk about myself, I know that the person who's listening to us doesn't give a rat's ass about me, doesn't give a rat's ass about you guys. They care about themselves. And I respect that, and I want to let them know what they're going to get out of listening to this program for themselves. So I made some notes here, and I know that you guys have some questions, and you guys have a lot that you want, but here's what I plan to give you, the listener. I'm going to show you how, if you're a podcaster or selling anything online, uh, or sorry, or doing anything online, how you can sell advertising for the first time. I know that's what started this interview. Jason asked me, and when I started to answer, he said, no, bring it on the show. Let's do it. I'm going to show you guys how I did it. I'll show everyone else in the audience how they did it. I am going to talk about how I get entrepreneurs on Mixergy to reveal their revenue, to open up about the numbers behind their business. I'm going to talk about why I think techies are misled about revenue and how the person listening to us, if they just change their outlook a little bit, will grow their mission. And finally, I'm going to tell you guys, Jason and Justin and whoever's in the audience, why John C. Dvorak was wrong, wrong, wrong on texting when he gave you guys advice. So that at least is what the person listening to us is going to get out of listening to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm all set. I'm ready <laughs> to go. Let's go. Let's <laughs> get this show on the road. All right. Now the person listening, I'm imagining is saying, who is this Andrew Warner loudmouth and what right does he have to tell me that he's going to change my life in any way? So here's who I am. I run a site, as you said, called Mixergy, where a mix of entrepreneurs talk about how they built their businesses. We've had people like uh, Scott McNeely on talk about how he built up Sun, what he learned along the way. Um, I've had people like the founder of Wikipedia come on, and they all talk about their experiences and how they built it with the idea that the person listening in the audience doesn't care about their story so much as they care about their own story. They don't care about my guests. And so I keep saying, right, how, what did what did you learn as you built your business? I say to my interviewee, and now how can my audience use it? And that's what I keep in mind. And that's what I think makes Mixergy special. That and the fact that I've built a business before I'm, I'm an experienced entrepreneur and I, I'm not here to just entertain people. I'm here to say to my audience, I know what you're feeling. I know no one's going to admit that at nights, even though everyone is an entrepreneur says I'm an entrepreneur because I, I want freedom. What no one ever says is at night, you're freaking scared to death that you wonder whether you'll ever make money, whether you're taking your family in the wrong direction, whether you're taking your own life in the wrong direction. You're watching your friends get these great jobs, live comfortably without any risks, and you're pretending to them that you have all the freedom in the world when you know to yourself in your heart of hearts that what, what you've got is a whole lot of risk and a whole lot of danger. And if we acknowledge that, you don't have to admit it. I admit it for you. And you don't have to you don't have to ask all the perfect questions, you, the person in the audience. I will, in my interviews, say, I know what you're going through, and I'm going to hunt 
down in my interview with the, with my entrepreneur guest every bit of information that I can for you. And if my guest thinks that I'm an ass for doing it, if they think I'm prying for asking about revenue, if they think I'm prying for asking about how they got their uh, their sponsors or how they ripped off the music industry before collaborating with the music industry, I don't care because I know the mission. And I know the person who's in my audience. And if no one else will acknowledge it, I will acknowledge it. That's what entrepreneurship's about. That's part of what it was for me, a big part of what it was for me in my life. And that's my mission to help people who are willing to go through that as a way of changing the world. Okay, well let's let's um uh, let's get back into the story a little bit before we yep. get into that. Um yep. you know uh because you know you say you're not just here to entertain people, you're here to sort of educate them, teach them things. We're just here to waste their time. So let's <laughs> let's start okay. with wasting some more. Let's start with say we're just here to waste people's time. Texting is just a it was so funny as as you were saying that I was thinking, "Oh god, well, like texting is completely different to that, you know." <laughs> we just <laughs> we, <laughs> We're like a, a magazine show, two guys chin wagon. Okay, so let's let's just a little back up on um on your on on your background. So okay. before Mixergy, I think you've you've alluded to it a few times on your show. You had another company with I think your brother that you started a while back. I did. And what was that? And what what well, tell us this little story of that? There's a company that we called Bradford and Reed and. The reason we call the Bradford and Reed is we were nobodies and I love sales. I know that you need to make sales in order to build a business. And I said, Michael, you worry about the technology. The guy's a freaking genius when it comes to de- when it comes to development. He doesn't love sales nearly as much as I do. I said, you worry about the technology. I'll worry about sales. And everything that we do is going to be everything that I do is going to be with the idea that sales matters and said, let's give our company the name Bradford and Reed. So when I call up someone to try to sell them on an ad, instead of being thought of as just another dot com on the phone who wants to sell ad or create a partnership or um, I don't know what it is, I will be seen as maybe a lawyer, maybe a uh, venture capital firm or investment firm. And my phone call when I call up reception will get put right through the right person. And so that's why we call the, the company well, Bradford and Reed. Well, where do, who who is Bradford and who's Reed? Completely made up. We got. We also understand <laughs> as two foreigners, we understand that in America, Americans love Americans. They love old British names even more. So we we got a book from the library of old British names, and we said, how can we use their prejudice against them? All right. Well, they love British names. Let's find the most British sounding, easy to spell names that we can that just sound good together. We'll put it out there. And we kid around with each other that I'm Bradford and he's Reed or vice versa. But the joke was really that we're getting past people's prejudices by using their prejudices. And you know what? Let me tell you something. One thing I learned from, um, I learned from everyone on, on Mixergy, I bring on porn stars. I bring, I brought on a guy who studied cults to understand how is it that cults persuade? How is it that cults um, build community so that I can teach my audience how to build community based on that? Well, so I learned from con artists. How do you bring people closer? I'm a I'm, I'm learning all the time. I'm, I'm fascinated by this stuff. And one thing that they do is they tell a lie and then they reveal a lie. And then they bring, the pers- they bring their mark in with that, re- with that revelation. So I would say, okay, I'm going to tell a lie with Bradford and Reed being the name. And then I'm going to reveal the lie to the person on the phone. After we get on the phone together for a call or two, a sales call or two, I say, listen, you know, Bradford and Reed is made up. Here's how I made it up. And they'd laugh and they'd understand who I was and how hungry I was to build a business. And we'd be in on this, this, this little game that I played. And it 
it was a bonding moment. And so it worked first in lots and lots and lots of different ways. Okay, because as I say, Warner is a fairly American name, right? I mean, you could have used Warner, but then, of course, then it would have removed the fictitious nature of the name, right? Exactly. Then it, then I seem like um, like an arrogant guy who, on day one, gives gives his company his name and then gives himself a highfalutin title, uh, maybe even three titles, CEO, chairman, president, and um and chairman of the board. Well, what, well, what, what, um, what, you know, what is your nationality? Because Warner, it sounds like an American name. You said you're not, you're a foreigner. What, where are you from? I'm not revealing it. You're not revealing I'm it. I'm not revealing it. I've got created this whole sham just to unravel it here in front of your audience. <laughs> well, my, that's uh, <laughs> my, my last okay. name is Persian, uh, Khalili. And okay. my, my dad's Persian. My mom's Iraqi. I was born in Israel. So I've got a very Middle Eastern mixed background. None of it, None of it is is working in my favor. If I was today, if I had an Indian background, at least people would say, oh, Indian name, the guy must code. Might be, you know, uh, if I had, um, what other what other ethnicities are we respecting right now? Maybe a Chinese last name. So well, I didn't, I said, screw it, I'll make it up. And, and you know what? I also A-B tested. I used to work for, um, I used to work for a headhunting firm. And when you call up a Wall Street headhunting firm, when you call up into a Wall Street firm, when you're a headhunter, you can't say your name. You can't say the name of the headhunting firm that you're calling from because it's uh, it's a breach of the confidentiality that your cl- that your um, candidates expect from you. So I test a bunch of names, and on Wall Street, no one has any time for you. They they just want you off the phone quickly. And if I'd say my ethnic name, no one would no one would put me through. They'd say we don't have any time. We call back after hours, and after hours really means they're going to be in a bar somewhere. They're not going to have time for you. So I test. I wrote down a bunch of names and I tested it. I tested Asian names to see if that would get me on the phone faster. I tested American with Asian names. I remember um, uh, I forget what the first name was, but it was it was a combination that didn't work. The name that did work for me over and over and over and over again, no matter how busy people were, is a name I didn't use. The name was Tom Warner. And I realized only years later why that got me through. People always thought they knew Tom Warner. And the reason is, New Yorkers will understand this, in New York, the cable company is Time Warner. They knew that the name sounded familiar, but they didn't have time to process Uh. why. And so they said, Tom Warner's on the phone. I, maybe he's a friend. Maybe he works at the company. I don't know what. Let's get him on to, let's connect him to the person who he needs. And so when I started Bradford Reed, I actually used my name first. And then I said, that's not working when I'm making sales calls. I said, I'll go with Tom Warner. And sure enough, it worked. And then it was time for me to say, okay, you got to either go with this name or, or go back to, you, gotta, you have to have a name that's on your driver's license. People are, are paying to fly you out or, uh, or setting up meetings with you. It'd be awkward to explain why the name on your driver's license isn't the same one as the name you gave um, over the phone. So at that point, I said, I can't be a Tom. I don't look like a Tom. I'm not a Tom in person. I need another, at least another first name. I can't change my whole name again. So I said, I admired Andrew Carnegie as a kid. I said, I want his kind of persistence in my, in my day. When people talk to me, I want them to keep reminding me of that, that scrappy guy who came from Scotland to the U.S. with nothing, who shoveled coal, who, whose parents had a hard time making it and who eventually became the richest man in the country and then taught other people how to do it. And I said, OK, Andrew is the name that, was, that will remind me of that spirit. And so I went with Andrew Warner. So did, so I made it legal. That's it. 
You, oh, you made it legal. And, and, and this is when this is when you were just starting up Bradford and Reed or in the or yeah, soon after Reed. we started up. I was kind of uh, I was testing my real name. I was testing and then I I was I was convinced that it didn't really matter that my name didn't matter. It did matter. And so I changed it. Did um, now what was the what was the what was Bradford and Reed selling? What was the product or service? So the first thing we did was email newsletters. This was back at a time when people actually wanted to subscribe to email. And I'm discovering now that email newsletters are hot again and very profitable business. But back then they were profitable. And we would build up these email newsletters of people who wanted to learn a vocabulary word and they wanted to learn trivia and so on. And And what I needed to do was Michael built up the technology. The guy coded the whole thing up, soup to nuts. I needed to... I need to find a way to monetize it. And so I'd call up companies and ask them if they would sponsor a text ad in my text-based email. And that, that alone is pretty tough to convince somebody to do. We're all used to banners and, um, and, and images and we're used to the web. I had to convince them that email was better and that they should go with text. And so to, to do that, I needed all the help I could get. Right. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, let's say how, how long did this, did, did, did you work on Bradford and Reed? Was this like a, just a short-term company or did this last a while? Maybe five years or so. That's pretty good. And then you ended up selling it, right? Yeah, it was actually terrible for me that I wanted to do it for the rest of my life. I came into business with the idea that the people who I admired didn't bounce around from company to company. They stayed with one thing. They stayed true to it for the rest of their lives. Um, and I wanted that. And unfortunately, that's not the way it worked out. I got burned out. I... Um, needed a big break and when i had the chance i took it and and just you know before we get on because i think we're you know before we get on to mixer g before you started um bradford and reed i mean did you go to school for business what was your sort of background where'd you grow up where you where did you grow up and where'd you go to school and that kind of stuff it'd be interesting to hear i grew up that. in new york and i feel like new york is school for business when you when when you live in a city that that the city starts to take you over. When you, when you walk through a city like Manhattan and you see business people who, who autograph the skyline, when you see companies that were just ideas in someone's head that became these big companies that others were working in and counting on for their, uh, for their livelihoods, counting on for inspiration, counting on for, for so much say, I want that. I want to be a part of that. I don't want to just walk through other people's dreams. I want to create my own dream the same way that guys like Harry Helmsley did. And, and so, but, and then, then you, when you started, I guess when you started Bradford and Reed, that, that whole thing took place while you were in, uh, I New guess, York, living yeah. in New York. And then when you sold it, what did you move out to LA? Right afterwards, I moved to Los Angeles. And that was part of your decompression period? Yeah, I decided I would just sit on the beach. I got this place right on the beach which was a mistake. I love Venice. So I said, I want to be right on Venice. I want to look out and see the, the ocean there. What I discovered was weekends on Venice, when you want to sleep in, there's so much noise that you can't, you can't even listen to the TV if you wanted to, but right. it was, it was a fun time. It no, me, the noise kept me from sleeping in, which was when not- you so- when you sold Bradford and Reed, um, I mean, it's, I mean, I must I imagine you must have sold it for a fair mo- amount of money. Have you? Are you willing to disclose that, or is that? Uh... No, I'm not. But I'll tell you this: that it was it was sold in pieces. But Bradford and Reed, Michael and I still own, still has assets, um, and but we did sell pieces of it over time. And okay. I'll, 
I won't disclose how much for, I'll just say that I've been living off of it now for years and years and years, and I could continue if I wanted to. Okay, so, I mean, I know you ask a lot of your guests how much they make and how much they sold their companies mm-hmm. for, so how come you're not willing to, um, to, to disclose? What, what, why is it important for you to keep that private? I think that there's value in disclosing, in disclosing finances, but I also think that there's value in keeping them private. I don't say you're not allowed on the program, you're not allowed to come to Mixergy unless you disclose your finances. Um, but I, I do say whatever you're willing to disclose, I want to hear because I think it's useful. So my finances, the complete audited by Ernst & Young finances, I believe, are online. You can Google them and you can see where they were, uh, where they were, Bradford and Reed. Um, and I'm happy to share. In fact, it, it was a struggle for me to share it. But once I did, I was fairly happy that I did it. And I think that it added to to my credibility helped people get to know who I was. It helped, um, it helped me feel like big secrets aren't, you don't have to keep them. It's written on the front page about the 30 million revenue of that company, right? Yeah. And, uh, and beyond that, when I was interviewed by Neil Patel, this is a guy who got me to finally say, I used to on Mixergy, not say a word about myself. I used to just say, it's about the people I'm interviewing. It's not about me. And Neil said, no, people want to know who you are. In fact, before I, I did this interview with you guys, even though I've been listening to texting, I went and checked out um, who is Jason, who's Justin, what what are their blogs, what's their history, and I know it from the program, but I still wanted to read more about the guys behind the program. And people do the same thing with me. And so Neil first said, "Do it with me on my site." And so I gave him my finances, like he asked me for. I gave him information about how I did it, and he posted. He took a screenshot, not a screenshot, a, a scan, and he posted it. Um, but I'll tell you this. Finances are important and they're out there, but if all we have is a number and we don't know how we got there and we don't know about what that number means, it's meaningless. So it's just one element of an overall understanding of a business and we need that overall understanding in order to make that business useful. And, and, and I think that's fair enough. I just want to ask one question, Justin. Yep. So what was your biggest fear in terms of making the number public? I mean, what was holding you back? Kidnapping. I mean, I like to travel. In fact, I was in Argentina. People don't understand why uh, or, or any kind of damage. I like to travel and I was in Argentina and people kept saying to me, why aren't you interviewing Argentine entrepreneurs? And I'd meet these great guys and I'd say, why, why don't you want to come on and talk a l- at least a little bit about your business? They said, Andrew, you don't understand. One guy told me about how his dad was kidnapped years before. Another guy told me about how he's got families. So when you're in parts of the world, you don't want to reveal your, you don't want that kind of personal information out there. And so I said, I like traveling and I don't like traveling and staying in really nice hotels. I like, if I could, I, I would almost sleep on a park bench when I travel. I like to just experience the city fully and live, live without being bothered. And I said, that could be a risk. That could, that could be a risk. And so, so do you think, do you think somebody like Jason Calacanis, who's a little more, who's, whose wealth is a little more well-known and, or, and something he's pretty transparent about and who's someone who's pretty what web famous. Do you think he would have a problem in somewhere like Brazil and Argentina? I think the way that he would travel, he wouldn't. I don't imagine that he would be, that he would be traveling the way I'd like to travel. Now, don't get me wrong. In Argentina, I had a really nice place. I was nowhere near, um, I wasn't sleeping in hostels, but I'd love to go and sleep in a hostel. If it was, if it was acceptable, I'd go and sleep in a hostel. I love that kind of, uh, that kind of backpacking experience in the city. Uh, um, have you traveled much of the world in that way? I have, yeah. 
What's what's been your what's been your favorite destination? Just in case that's of interest to this. I'll tell you, but I can see this program is so much different from mine. I can't imagine the person sitting in the audience going, "I I gotta know what Andrew's favorite destination is." Finally, someone's cracking that. No, they are sitting saying, "Tell me about me. Well, what's in it for me, Jason, Justin? Shut up about Andrew. Tell me about me." And if we can't get to them. Well, then you have your own program and you want to do it your way. And we can find another outlet for, for what I think they need. But I'll let yeah, you we'll, drive. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get there in a second. I, I just kind of wanted to uh, get our t- listeners to get a chance to see who Andrew Warner is. And I, I'm just curious myself, you know, I mean, your interviews yeah, exactly. are mostly focused on your. Let's put it this way. The, the texting is we, we the reason why we do texting. And I think we're pretty open about this is we do it from a selfish point of view. We do it because of stuff that we're interested in finding out about. So when we ask you a question, it's because we want to know the answer. To be honest, to some extent, we don't really think about, oh, is that what the listeners want to know? It's what we want to know. And we just hope that the people who listen to the show are interested in the same stuff that we are. Well, let me ask you this, though, Justin. I know you want to know about this. And um, this isn't criticism. This is my my eagerness to learn about you. You're running Plugio, right? You, you're trying to figure out how to build your business. What the? What do you care about? my favorite place. Your obsession is how do I get people to stop going to twitter.com and start going to my website? What do I need to do to say texting is a great program that I love. I'd love to see money come in from this thing. That I would imagine would be your burning obsession. You must be like in the bathroom thinking about it. You must be going to sleep thinking about it. You must be, I don't know if you're married, maybe when you're with your wife, you think about it. So that I would imagine, but maybe I'd make that just It me. is my obsession, but I, I mean, I'm also a human and I'm, I'm interested in the human story and what other people have to say. So I don't right, only think enough. about that business 24-7. I also think about relationships and people. All right, fair enough. Okay, so, so, I'm, I'm, <laughs> a little, I'm not human enough and I accept that and I'm working on it. <laughs> no, I'm not saying you're not human enough. I'm just saying, not, I, I've been to I'm just saying that there is more to life than business. I need to learn how to relate, she told me. Uh, <laughs> Andrew is a cyborg. That's what we've uncovered. <laughs> so so here's, here it is. There are two favorite places that I love, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you why separately. First of all, I loved Argentina. We spent a year in Buenos Aires. Olivia and I live in a beautiful place. We had a comfortable life. I mean, we'd go out and just everything was new. It's not so much about comfort as the newness. I'd go into work and I'd have a nice office, but at the that was similar to the office that I have here. But at the end of the day, Olivia and I would go and explore a new restaurant. I try incredible steak that they would take two spoons on the side and just like hold, use one spoon to hold down the steak. And with the side of the other, they would cut the steak before presenting it to you. I mean, that it was that, um, that easy to cut. It was that delicious steak that we'd have. And it was a fun life where we'd take weekend trips and go explore different parts of the country, or we'd go to Patagonia for a week and, it was it was absolutely um, one of the best years in my life. That's the re- see. Th- this is the reason why people become entrepreneurs so that they can do things like that, right? So it's their goal. So what you're what you're giving our listeners here is a kind of a reason to live and a reason to be in business. So no, I don't know that that's true. That. I think anyone who has a reason, if anyone whose goal is to have a good life because of business, is going at it half backwards. That's that's putting yourself through a whole lot of pain just so you can get something that you can have without the pain. Because I saw people in Argentina were living incredible lives, very inexpensively, and they didn't. They, they were doing maybe um, some web design on the side. So you don't need it. it, it you- so skip out, skip out the kind of the hard work, the long journey. Just go straight to kind of living in Greece. I concur. Yes, yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to live, if you want to travel around, then travel around, I and mean, that's that's a mistake that people fall into, where they spend years and years and years working their self to the, working their 
working to the bone, and then they just um, they got nothing left, and then they're just old and they can't do the things they want. Well, it's interesting because I, I have a very close friend who's done exactly that, who's gone down the route of living the exact life that he wanted, of traveling, of doing everything, and now he's 45 and he's so stressed because he basically has no money and he's built nothing for himself and he's built no life. So yes, you can do that, but you still end up with well, with nothing. Yeah, well, there's there's a price right? for everything, and it's all about balance, right? I mean, if you want to, let's say that you want to be a writer, and you say, okay, well, I'm going to make a bunch of money, and and then I'm going, and then I'm going to retire, and I'm going to write novels. So it's like, well, no, you can write novels and work at the same time. You know, you you can just you don't have to just do one or the other, and you have to, and you don't have to do things sequentially. But um, yeah, well, Andrew, let's 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 ask this let's ask him, Andrew some um some questions specific about Mixergy and all that. I, uh, you know, because we we don't have a lot of time with him, and and um, I think we should get to it. So, Andrew, um, hmm? why did you start Mixergy, and you know how did you start it? I started it because for a long time at Bradford and Reed, I was in hiding. I buy hundreds of thousands of dollars in hardware and the company that I bought it from would say, can we use you as a case study? Can we tell, can we include you in our, in our press releases? And I'd say, no. Can we put your logo on our website as one of our happy customers? I say, no. Can we talk about you at dinner with, no, I just want to do my business. I don't want anyone to talk about me because I don't need any competition. The only people who need to know about me are my customers. That's a great way to do business. It's a but it's, it's very isolating, and it's, it's a terrible way to leave a legacy, I think. So it made sense while I was building a business. And afterwards, I said, no, now it's time for me to go and, and speak out a little bit. And, and the people who I, who I admire who spoke out didn't speak so much about them knowing everything as they did about what they were learning from other people. I'll give you an example. When I was – I used to be a real jerk in, in high school and – I think it even extended into college because every I wanted to be a businessman and everyone who I saw on TV was a businessman who, who was a jerk. Like the movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko. He's he's kicking people out of his limousines. He's, he's um, saying greed is good. And I tried it in business and it, and it didn't work. I went on an internship and I'm sitting there and they say, you got to sell this client. I go, I'm going to sell a client. I'm not even talking to the client. I don't know how to schmooze. So I picked up a book called Dale Carnegie uh, by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. In it, he doesn't say, this is my way you've got to follow. He goes, this is what I've learned from all these students in one of my classes, in my speech class. And this is what I've learned, too, from all the research that I've done, from all the, um, from all the people who are good with people. He put it out there. And I was so moved by it that I went and I knocked on uh, Dale Carnegie and Associates' door and I said, you have to hire me. I'll do anything. You don't even have to pay me. I just want to learn and experience this from you. And, and I did. And it changed my life. But I don't want to just be the person who's, who's taking in information like that. I don't want to be passive. I want to be, the, I want to be the kind of person that Dale Carnegie was. I want to go out and do the same for other people. And so I said, I will interview successful entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. I'll bring some of the best ideas that they had to an audience of people who are as ambitious as I was, who aren't happy to just say, boy, that Dale Carnegie and his lessons are great, but would say, and I know my audience would do this. If they love someone, they would go and knock on their door and say, I'd love to just come here and work with you. If they love and want to work with someone, they pick up the phone and, or send out an email. They're not passive. And it's not, most people are passive. Most people aren't eager to put themselves out there like that, but I figured there's a small group of people out there who are similar to me and I want to I want to help them I want to I want to be there for them the way Dale Carnegie was for me of all the the shows that you've um that you've recorded 
Are there any that you would think or would say are like, yeah, that's really key core listening, like that, that you maybe recommend one or two shows to our listeners? You know, there are a lot of them um, and it depends on what you want. I'll tell you that I was moved today by the interview that I posted with Neil Strauss. This is a guy who took himself from what he called an average frustrated chump. He says that his hair was was thinning, that he was short, that he was that he was weird looking. I, I don't know that he used the word weird looking, but he, he was a dork. And, and I hate to even say this to someone, but he said worse about himself, it feels like, in the book, The Game. But he took himself from that slowly and made himself into a master pickup artist, a guy who's who knows how to pick women up, a guy who teaches this to others. And the, the book, The Game, was inspiring to a lot of people. And I said to myself, it's not about, for me, the curiosity that I have about how he picked up girls. Curiosity I have is, how can we use that to build rapport with other people, to build rapport with, with uh, guys like Jason and Justin, if I'm on texting, to build rapport with my next guest on Mixergy? How do I do that? And I asked him, and he taught me, and he he talked about how he did it. And he says, look, it's not just about girls for him either. He's, he's an author who does a lot of interviews himself and he has to with, within five minutes, sometimes get a celebrity like Lady Gaga or Britney Spears to open up. And, and he says, look to them, I'm nothing. They don't care that I'm with Rolling Stone or the New York times. They just feel like I'm a nothing guy who, who wants something from them. And I have to build rapport with them quickly and get them to come around to, to help me do what I want. And, said, all right, teach me that. I want to learn that. And so to me, that's useful. And every okay, interviewee so, has that kind of value to add in his own way. Okay. So when you started Mixergy, you're very, when you decided to do it, was it your goal to turn it into a thriving business or was it just something that you were going to do as a project to see where it would go, have some fun with, maybe stretch yourself a little bit? I wasn't sure. For the first time in my life, I said, I'm going to try something without a clear direction. Anything else in life, I had a business plan for. I say even in, on Mixergy that after, after Bradford and Reed, when I went out to date in LA, I had a business plan for it. I knew how many times I had to go out a day, a week. It was going to be six times every week, six nights a week I'm out. I knew how many girls I wanted to talk to at bare minimum. It was five. I knew that I could convert one out of five to, <laughs> to at least get a phone number. <laughs> That's and funny. and then from there, if there was some hit, then we can we can um, uh, maybe date. But it was like a mission. It was it was a business plan. I knew exactly where I was going. I knew the kind of person I wanted to be. I didn't want to be a jerk with it. I didn't want to be a guy who pretended that that who pretended that he wasn't who he was. And so I was very open about it. I was very open about who I was and, and did it on my terms. And the same thing with Bradford and Reed and the same thing with every, every other aspect of my life, including running, which I love, where I would set goals for marathons that I want to do. But with Bradford and Reed, with, uh, with Mixergy, it wasn't about that. It was giving myself some room to try something completely different because I had the ability to do that. Yeah, and, and but Mick, oh, go ahead, Justin. Oh, I was just going to talk, just ask another question about Mixergy, if that's okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, when entrepreneurs are successful and, and retelling their story, sometimes they have a tendency to rewrite history and miss out some of the hard work. I was just wondering how you get around that on Mixergy and how you kind of tease that out of them. One way that I do it is by opening up about myself and my tough time. And often when someone, when I ask someone, what was your motivation? And they say, well, I just wanted to build a great company. I go, 
I get that. What about, you know, did you have anything like me? Like, were you also a dork in high school who no girl was going to date? And you said to yourself, like I did, that, that you were one day going to make enough money that you can solve the dork problem for yourself. And, and immediately, if they feel that, then they start to relate to it. And if they don't, they start to rebel against it. And the way they rebel against that is by coming up with what, what they really are. And, and so either, either response is helpful. Okay. Oh, awesome. So, okay. So when you when you when you got started, I mean, now you you pump out like I don't know three shows a week sometimes. I, I mean, no, you, you do a nobody knows how many I do for some reason. I need to be clear about it, so I'll do it right here. Five a week, every single day. I did last year and do did this year and will continue to do every single day. I do an interview with an entrepreneur. That's a no BS interview where they open up about really what it's like. Yeah, and, that's um, a, that's impressive. Every day. I mean, that's- that, that that's 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 shipping <laughs> he is and how and uh, each one is what half an hour is it each one is i'd say uh, usually at minimum an hour and then there's heavy research that goes into it it's it's a uh, it's a real mission here and i wouldn't even call it a show and the reason i wouldn't call it a show is i'm not a showman i remember being at the being in an airport with my friend shira lazar she just pulled out a video camera and started recording herself and she was on and she was interesting and people around her were watching her, not just because she was a crazy person talking into her hand and didn't see that she had a camera in it, but because she was just interesting. She knew how to capture people's attention. She could smile on camera and capture people's attention. I don't have that. I never will. I don't even want to cultivate it. I'm not a showman. What I am is insanely curious about business, insanely practical about it, and I just want to learn and and that, I think, is something I could sustain. And the reason that I do it daily, by the way, is because I sucked. Because when I first started out, <laughs> I was so nervous. I remember when I interviewed um, Timothy Sykes and I asked him, how did you go on CNBC and capture everyone's attention? What did you do? And I kept pushing him and pushing him. And he gave me lots of things. And then after pushing him a little bit further, he said, I also drank. And I said, oh, you drank before. So that's how you're, you're able to be so funny and witty and interesting. So I'm going to drink too. So I started drinking a little bit before recording the promo for, for his interview. I drank and I didn't get like sloppy. I just got tired and I couldn't focus and that didn't work, but I was willing to try anything. And so I said, the only way I can be consistent with this and not give up on it is if I go every day, there's magic to going every day because if I screw up on Monday, I don't say to myself, ah, oh, I'll Next time I do it some other time, I'll, or worse even, I don't say to myself, I'll, I'll do it some other time and never get to it. I know Tuesday I have to do it again. And if I screw up on Tuesday, I don't say, oh, I've got to learn that and remember, fall it away, come back next Tuesday and do better. No, Wednesday, it's on again, baby, and I've got to, and I've got to fix that problem myself. And eventually you get better and better and better and better and better and better. I wouldn't be able to talk to you now without stuttering and umming and second-guessing myself and wondering whether I should have told you that I was a dork in high school. I wouldn't have been able to do it if not for doing it every single day on Mixergy. And doing it every day has a magic to it, whether it's, whether it's uh, doing interviews or working on a passion project or if you want to be – if you want to work out, going every day or dating girls, going out every day. If you're a big chicken the way I was, if you go every day and push yourself a little bit more – You'll get you'll get it done. So when I would, did you did you start with the idea that you're gonna do it every day, or did it evolve into that over a period of months? How long did it take to get to that point? It kind of evolved into it. Um, I think in the back of my head, I always wanted to do it every day. I said I'd love to have an interesting conversation every day, useful conversation every day. So before I even thought of an audience, I said for myself, I grow because I read. 
I grow because I experience things, but I grow so much more. I feel when I have a conversation with someone who challenges me, who pushes me back, who pushes back on what I have to say, who introduces and forces me to think about an idea that I wouldn't have thought of before. And so I said, it'd be nice to have that kind of conversation every day. I didn't know how hard it would be, but. How long did it take before you um, started earning some revenue from Mixergy? You know, for a long time, I resisted it. People, when you start publishing and, and especially when you start getting the kinds of guests that I do, their friends come, their friends would come to me and say, I want to buy an ad. I know your show because my friend was interviewed. I don't even care how big it is. I'll just buy an ad from you. And I said, no, it's just not, I don't have the, the bandwidth for it. I don't have the patience for it. I don't need the money. It's, it's not going to change my world. Let's not take it. And then I said, let's experiment. Let's see what happens if I do take an ad. I keep pushing myself to try new things. And so I did it. And it went well and I loved it. I loved actually selling. It felt like selling again. And then I did it again. And I actually did it. I don't know if I should say who it was for, but I did it for someone who's well known in the space. And he said, Andrew, you're selling too much. We don't want you to be such a salesman. And then he didn't renew the, the ad spot because I loved selling it. I said, all right, I'll get better at selling, but I do know that I love selling. So this gives me an outlet to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to sell not so much selling the advertising to the sponsors as selling the sponsors product to my audience. I love explaining to people why grasshopper is not just a phone number, not just a Google replacement, why grasshopper is a virtual phone system. I love taking them through the features. I love telling them how when I was in Argentina, I would get phone calls because of grasshopper. I love that. So now, how did you figure out how much to charge? I mean, was it, did, did you just throw out a number? Did they throw out a number? What, now what we're getting to something. On? Here's what I did. Yeah. I said, I'm going to call up people who are sponsoring other shows because it's hard to convince somebody who doesn't sponsor to sponsor. It's hard to convince someone who does sponsor but doesn't understand podcasting and doesn't sponsor podcasting to sponsor a new podcast. I said, I'm going to see who's sponsoring already. I'll call them up and I'll ask them why. Why are you sponsoring? What are you paying? What do you get for it? Just all kinds of questions. Not anyone who, um, who like if I, if you and if you were in the business and I was starting out, I wouldn't call your sponsors because I'd want us to maintain a friendship and I don't, I wouldn't want you to feel violated or to cause, I, I want, I want to keep you on my side and get you to help me out. But someone who I wouldn't need to keep on my side, I call up and I just try to find out about their sponsors. And in time I realized, Oh, you know what? I can do that. And I said, what do you expect? And the sponsor said, well, we kind of expect for that price to have this many orders come in. And I said, oh, interesting. So if I could get you that many orders, mm -hmm. would you want to sponsor with me? And I said, yeah, you know, we would. I said, okay, what if I guaranteed it? You know, you only pay once you hit that level. And if you don't hit that level, you don't pay. I said, all right. And I said, okay, well, I'll run some spots for you and I'll see how long it takes me to, to hit that level that you think is worth, I think it was like 700 bucks, maybe 750 bucks. 750 bucks me, for a single show or for a month worth of shows or what? It was just a number, and I was going to see how many programs would get me to earn that number back. Okay. And I just did a bunch of spots. I actually was so nervous even being on camera that I asked my wife to come on camera with me. Then uh, she was my girlfriend, and I said, so I'll have my girlfriend with me. We'll both talk about this, and she'll make it easier for me to, is it, she'll make it easier for me to go on camera and do it. So I did it, and it took me maybe – a month of programs. And I said, huh, there's my new price, a month of programs for $750 or whatever it was. And then I took, I took that for a while and I took that to the next person and the next person. I said, look, it's working for this other company over there. You can call them up and see that $750 for a month of spots makes sense for them. Give it a shot. In fact, I think maybe I undercharged what it would be just to make sure that they'd be happy with it. Sorry, that's great. And so I undercharged, I continued for a while. And then I said, 
I see now that people are really happy with it. I know that I can deliver much more. I know that I could um, bring in more revenue. So how do I how do I double it and do it right without too much pressure on me? Without because I still want to do my interviews. How do I get my price up? And I remember Joel Spolsky saying. I don't remember if it was when I interviewed him or somewhere else. I'm a big fan. I keep taking a lot of his information. But he said, look. For companies, anything under a thousand bucks doesn't register. If you say I'm going to charge you eight hundred dollars or seven hundred dollars, it's all the same. The same person can make that decision. The same decision making process goes into it. Seven hundred, eight hundred, nine hundred doesn't affect much. So I said, all right, I'm charging seven hundred. I don't want to go above a thousand because that might bring in a whole new layer of of uh, questioning, whole new layer of 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 uh, back and forth with new people. I said. I'll reduce the price, but I'll also cut my the spots that I sell in half. So now instead of selling a month of spots for seven fifty, I'll sell half a month of spots for six fifty. And so that made sense, and I took that out, and it worked out, and I kept it there. I can probably double my prices right now, and and or or um, for the same price, give just a week of spots instead of half. But it's been going nicely. It doesn't take up too much of my time, and I'm happy with it. So I'm sticking with it. And what are the metrics like? What so what would you get for for people who advertise on the show? How many kind of downloads or listens could you kind of promise them? No metrics. I don't give them any metrics. I don't want to bother with how many people I have in my audience. It's not part of my mission in life right now. It's not about growing them. It's about finding the the right people for my audience. Um, and so I say, you're not going to get any metrics. I'm not. I'm not going to tell you much. Except you know who I am, you know the audience. You, you, if you, if this is the audience that you want to reach, I've got them for you. And a lot of my sponsors say, I talk to my friends about you. I know that people are listening. I'll do it. Right. So, and you, and you, what you carry? What, like three or four spots per show? Three spots per show. And I'll tell you something else about metrics. Everyone thinks that numbers don't lie. Well, the people who create numbers do lie. I know for a fact that other podcasters lie about the number of people in their audience when they sell them. There is no way that anyone's going to catch you. So you might as well, might as well say that you have 10,000, 20,000 people who are watching. No one's going to catch you on it. And if they ask you too many questions, well, you start to come up with all kinds of excuses. You start to say, well, you know, it's people who are watching uh, on the website and then they're also getting it from YouTube. And then they're also iTunes and you have to understand next week, they'll also be downloading this program and you make up all kinds of BS. People do it all the time. Numbers don't lie. Numbers do do lie if they're coming from a, from a liar. Um, and I don't blame those guys for for inflating their numbers. So that's why you go for a performance. Exactly, a your deal, performance right? isn't going to lie. If I have a million people and, and and you're not getting any any impact from your ad, then the million's useless to you. But if I have just two people and you're getting a lot of impact, a lot of orders, and a lot of conversation because those two people are the right two people, then you're going to be happy with it. So try it out. That's it. Have you had to turn down um, ads then because they just didn't fit with the audience? All the time, yeah. I do want to make sure that the advertising represents me well. Well, uh, uh, you know, and, and what, what about the pricing? I mean, if you have more than three potential sponsors at any one time, are you going to raise the price or are you just going to put people in a queue? And, and, and I put them in the queue. Place? I have a wait list. Okay, well, why not raise the prices? I mean, you know, it's, that's sort of an auction format. So where are the, five, the three highest bidders, say? A big problem, problem that I have is if I raise the price, I have to put more energy into it. And I'm thinking, do I want to put more energy into that or do I want to put more energy into other things that matter to me more? And so I'm essentially paying for my own time 
and using that time to do other things that I care about. Do you have a like a subscriber version of um, Mixergy? I do. And so that's like a premium version. What? Yep. How did that all come about, and how's that working out for you? Well, before I tell you about that, I'll tell you about, and I think this is important to make the point because people are going to be resistant unless they hear this. If you're at an event, take a look often at the first two rows, and I bet if you've been to enough, enough events, you can relate to this. The first two rows are often empty until they have to be full, until there are no other seats. Two rows empty because people are too embarrassed to sit up front. And it stinks for the speaker because he's got to look down at these two empty rows and feel like, why are, why don't, what do I have, cooties? People don't want to be close to me? Well, I saw this one guy. It might have been at Dale Carnegie, I forget. One speaker who said, I'm going to turn this to my advantage. No one wants to sit in the first two rows. He came up with this solution. Said the first two rows are now VIP rows, and you have to pay to get access to them. And I watched the people who sat in the VIP. First of all, they sat there quickly. Second, they sat like with their heads held high. Like, look at me, I'm a VIP. And not only do I want to sit here, I want to sit here early so more people get to see me up front to see that I'm a VIP. And they're willing to pay more for it. And then the people who were sitting behind them were eager to come and sit close to VIP because they said, oh, I'm going to outsmart the system. I don't want to pay for VIP seats or I can't pay for VIP seats, but I'm going to get the next best thing for a lot less money. And so they moved right in. And this guy turned a liability, a problem into, into an asset, took something that nobody wanted and made it into something that everyone was fighting for. So how does that relate to me with Mixergy? I had an audience of people who only looked at my latest stuff. If I published some, some interview that I knew wasn't very good, but I published it this morning, my audience would flock to it because it was new. And they'd ignore the interview that I did with, um, with say, Seth Godin. I looked at the stats. They ignored it because that interview with Seth Godin was a year old. I said, that sucks. They're not doing it based on value. I said, all right, what if I take that interview with Seth Godin and I put it at the top of my page, the, the premium spot? Well, it's kind of an old interview. People click, they wouldn't necessarily watch it. They wouldn't pay attention to it. They want new. And I'm not pointing fingers. I want new too. It's not going to change my life to know what the latest rumor is about the upcoming iPhone 5, but it's news. And so I have to find out about it. And I flock to sites that tell me about the latest iPhone 5, and I forget to pay attention to sites that tell me about how to do how to use my phone, right? Or how to stop getting distracted by my phone. So we're all, we're all drawn to news. I'm not insulting anyone. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm saying I had to find a way to use it to my advantage. So I said, all right, if you're not going to it and they're not, I'm going to start charging for it. And what happened was people would come to the site quickly saying, I want to download the latest stuff because I want, because I know Andrew's going to charge for it next week, next month, at some point they're going to, that he's going to charge for it. So they would rush to the site soon for that. People would have their professors email me and say, please, can you give out um, uh, access to the old interviews for my class? Um, traffic in general increased. I did A-B testing in my emails and I said, look, I've got a new interview. One, one email essentially said, I've got a new interview. The other interview said, the other uh, part of the A-B test was, I have a new interview. Uh, and it said the exact same thing and said, get it now while it's free. Shorter words than that. I didn't want to take up more words on the page. The one that said, get it now while it's free, got more clicks to that new interview than the one that just said there's a new interview. So I said, huh, not only are people now starting to, to fight to get access to the old stuff that they ignored, but now 
Now the new stuff is getting even more attention. So all the way around this thing worked for me. You want to know how to, how to take something that, that's, that people don't want and make it into something they fight for, learn from these guys who sell VIP seats at the front of their events. So did, did you ever consider the, the, pro, the idea of uh, listener-supported um, model? Uh, yeah, now like? we're getting into John C. Dvorak territory. Now, yeah. I listened to John C. Dvorak, and I told you I like to try everything. He came on your show, and he said, ask for donations. That's the new thing. He said, if Leo Laporte asked for donations and put as much effort into donations as he puts into advertising, he'd make more money than he does from advertising. Leo Laporte uh, came to Mixer to talk about how he built his company. And I think it was there that he said that he made $1.5 million. Maybe they said how he did it. And then later he revealed that the number was 1.5 million a year. I said, huh, John C. Dvorak is saying that you can make more money from, from that. Now, I hate to be a guy with a tin cup. But if I'm not going to try something, then I'm someone who I hate even more. I'm going to be someone who's afraid to try something because he's afraid of what people will think or how he'll think about it, uh, how he'll feel about himself. So maybe I should try it. And then anyone who listens to John C. Dvorak on uh, This Week in Tech will remember this. I heard John C. Dvorak talk about, and I keep using his middle name because he does, talk about how Leo Laporte should buy him a MacBook Air. He goes, well, where's my MacBook Air? You should buy me a MacBook Air. And I said, huh. When you do something over and over, you get really good at it. He's begging over and over. I love the guy. I don't mean it in any disrespectful way, but he's begging on his show over and over for donations. He's gotten good at it. So good that now he's pestering, he's pestering a host of a show to give him a free MacBook Air. I said, I don't want that. I don't want that. Who do I admire in my audience? Well, one of the people who I admire is Jason Fried, who said, no, sorry, my audience and in my uh, interviewee list, Jason Fried, who said, sell and get better and better and better and better at it. So just start selling and you'll get better at it. I said, all right, just like I got better and better at doing interviews, I'm going to get better and better at selling stuff that, I'm, that will make me better and then I'll be proud at the end of. If I become the best beggar and become an outbeg um, NPR, will I be proud of that? No, but if I become a better salesman and, and get ideas on how to present ideas better and learn how to present ideas better in more compelling ways and learn how to think about my audience and what they want and how they want uh, um, products presented to them, will I be proud of that? I say, yeah, all right, that's the direction I want to go in. So no, um, the donation direction isn't for me. Well, what about the subscription model? I mean, what what portion of your of your revenue does that make? Is that a small or is that significant portion? Anyway, I'm not ready to reveal that yet. Okay, it sounds to me like it's just part of the strat the the overall strategy of um, ad sales. I mean, maybe yeah, maybe you don't well, want to I'm, say that, Andrew. Yeah, I'm just I actually uh, for a long time I didn't even know what the revenue was from it, and I kept saying on the program I don't know what the revenue is, and people didn't understand it until they said, "Oh, I'm using the same system as Andrew. I know why he doesn't know it." And then I think one guy in the audience said, "I, I found a workaround that'll show you how you can find out what revenue is coming from that, and without going crazy." I looked at it. it the reason I wasn't that obsessed with it is because it wasn't just about that. It wasn't if it wasn't a way to to get rich. I knew that this wasn't going to be the be all and all. And all. In fact, I knew I didn't even have a link on the homepage. Um, I was talking to Amy Hoy, who you guys interviewed a while back. Uh, I talked to her, I think it was yesterday. And she said, I, I hear some people complain about you selling access to part of your site. I don't even know where it is. So that's right. Cause I haven't even had a link to it. There's no link to it on the homepage right now. I haven't had a link to it. Um, 
prominent forever. It's not about getting more registrations. If I put a link to anything on the homepage, someone's going to buy it. I have a big enough audience now that if I put a link to Poison, some percentage of my audience will buy Poison and, um, and I'll get revenue from it. So it's not about that. It's about saying this stuff is valuable. And if you guys aren't going to value it, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to value it first. And then I'm going to, and then I know that you guys will value it. It's like someone who says, no one, no one likes me. No one wants to be my friend. Well, first you have to like yourself and then the rest of the world comes around. Said, so no one likes my old stuff. First, I, no one values it. First, I have to value it myself and then they will value it too. And sure enough, they fight for it. And I'll find right. more ways to present that stuff to them. But you tell me what other blogger, what other podcaster, what other interviewer has people who fight for their old stuff. And maybe this is dirty for me to charge. Maybe that's the wrong human being to be. But you know what? I pay Charlie Rose for old stuff. Charlie Rose has a lot of credibility in my book. I don't think he's a dirty human being for charging me a few bucks to get his old, his old interviews. I, um, I flock. I don't pay for This American Life, but I flock to this, this American Life web, um, to the podcast to make sure that I always download their latest one. I haven't heard them in weeks, but I have a separate space on my hard drive just for This American Life episodes because I know that if I don't save it now, next week it's going to be paid. So they got me to take action too. Are they dirty human beings? Are they, are they clever marketers who are out to cheat everyone with their clever marketing techniques? Or are they just doing something different that maybe we should all instead of criticizing learn from. I think that's, that's what it's done for me. So, uh, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about revenue, but I'd like to talk about the other side of the equation a little bit in terms of mm -hmm. costs. So there's two things, there's two costs uh, pro in, in addition to time that I think podcasts have to figure out how to cover, which are one, hosting, and two, uh, transcriptions if you have them. And you do video, which is a lot more bandwidth intensive than our show, which is just audio. So how how does that how much does that run you, and how do you how do you pay for it? I've never had video. No matter what service I've used, I've never had video cost me more than a few bucks a month. It's it's just an insignificant expense. There are huh. lots of video hosting services. Everyone knows I prefer Wistia. I'm a stats obsessed. People say, why do you need stats within the interview? It's not so much within the interview, but again, you learn. And when I learned how to use stats and I learned how to, how, to, how to get stats that I want and then make sense of them for my interviews, then when I create a page where a video is supposed to persuade you to do something, I know how to use the stats to improve that video and to, and to make sure that, that I can persuade you properly. And um, how do I, let me, let me make it a little more concrete. I wanted to take some of my old interviews and sell them to see to see if there's value in them. I created a course and I said, all right, let's do a video to explain what the course is about. Well, anyone else would just say, go to YouTube, create a video, put it up there. What you miss out is so much information. The first, the first headline you write when you're trying to, when you're trying to create a landing page, isn't going to be the perfect headline. You need stats to tell you can fix it. The first, uh, the first set of bullet points isn't going to be right. Well, the same thing for video. The first video you put up isn't going to be right. You want to create a video that you can edit within the video so that you can try different, uh, different content in it. And you need a system that's going to tell you where did people stop watching? What did people rewind? And so I use Wistia and I have a, I have a, a business relationship with Wistia, but I use them beyond it in order to, to sell anything on my site. Because if I see that you rewind a part of, of a landing page, one minute video that I create, I say, why? Ah, that message was important to you so much that you rewind. I should 
cut it out and put it in the beginning of the program and then make sure that I hook you with that. Or maybe I should promo that that's coming up and only release it at the end of the video to keep you watching till the end. So anyway, that's why I use it. But even if you don't like Wistia, if you say Andrew's a shill for, uh, for his friend Chris Savage's company, whatever it is you want to say, video hosting should not cost you much. There are lots of services out there that you can use and you can find the one that you love. Um, web hosting never cost me much. I use, um, I use uh, Media Temple and I've got a relationship with them too. But before that, I used a company called... Um, a blog hosting company. I forget what they're called, but they're, t- uh, why can't I think of them? Uh, something That's- blue. Shoot, it'll come to me. But for 100, 120 bucks, you create all the blogs that you want and you have all the bandwidth that you want and you have tons of hard drive space. It doesn't cost much 100, to do. 120 bucks a year or a month? A year. I was about to say, a month would be ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, blog host, I mean, web hosting is cheap. I just figured that the video hosting might be kind of expensive because I think for us, um, Justin, I mean, we're, we're, hosted for free by SoundCloud. Um, but if we weren't hosted, if we were still at Libsyn, how much would this run us? Uh, it's, it was actually a 40 of, was actually 40 a month. 40 a month. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, that's not, that's, that's not, not much. That's not much. Well, what about, but it was going to, it was going up, right? I mean, we were about to go hit the next level. We would, we probably would have had to go up to the 80, but I mean, I, I, to be honest, I think we were kind of set at 40 a month, but the problem was I wanted to upgrade the audio quality to the 128 megabits a second, and we couldn't do that on the 40 a month plan. So that would have been $80 a month. I think so, yeah. Okay, so the other, the other cost, I mean, we've had, we've had some discussion about the, the possibility of, of offering transcripts for the show, but I think transcripts run at, what, like 50, 50 cents a minute or something like that? And our shows are 90 minutes, and we do eight a month, so that gets, that gets up there. That's, you know, a few hundred, three, well, I don't know what the... I, it's like four hundred bucks. Yeah, three hundred and fifty, four hundred dollars, something like that. What, what? I mean, do you you do transcripts, right? I do transcripts and I pay for them. And it took me forever to find the right transcription company. And the reason that I promote them on my site, people think they bought an ad for me. They didn't. I don't want these guys to go out of business. They're called SpeechPad, and I know that it's expensive for transcription companies to work to to create transcripts, and then it's expensive for us to buy from them because it's expensive for them to put it together. Um, transcripts are, are, excuse me, are a pain, but I'll say this when you're bringing in revenue, none of it's a, none of it's a problem. That's why one of the items that I had on the list here is that we as techies need to think differently about revenue. We think revenue is an impediment to growth. We think revenue as not some, I know a lot of people are wincing and maybe turned off your, your, uh, interview with me when they heard me rave about money and they heard me rave about, uh, my need to charge or any part of it. I know it because I get the emails from them. I see them on hacker news complain. Um, but I'll tell you, we as techies, I wish that we'd be, we'd, we learn the value of it because it only helps grow our companies. When you look at a company like Delicious, I use Delicious every day. If Delicious was profitable, if it was kicking off revenue at least, big revenue for Yahoo, do you think Yahoo would treat it like dirt? Of course not. It would only help their mission, their beautiful mission of helping me sort the sites that I see every day and helping me share it sometimes. Revenue would only help them grow that mission. So if you guys were bringing in more revenue, the question of how much do transcripts cost would be nothing, nothing at all. So revenue is better for us and it's better for our listeners. Yes, exactly. And your listeners, some of them will complain, but I got to tell you guys in, in the audience, you should only love it when the people who, who are in your life make money. Now, there are always going to be people who in life, when you have something, you have a girlfriend and they have no girlfriend, they're going to start calling her a whore or something because I don't know what, because <laughs> they'll see her 
whatever kissing you in a, in a way that's open because they're jealous of it <laughs> they see you making little revenue they start putting you down because they're jealous of it we some people have legitimate arguments against you making revenue but we can't we can't get better ourselves at getting revenue if we kick people who try to make revenue if we see the texting is trying and failing and you're, you're going to probably fail the first few times that you that you go for big revenue with this but if we in the audience will insult you for it or kick you instead of supporting you and help you out with it and maybe even tolerate some bad ones. It's not the message that we're sending to you that's a problem. It's a message we're sending to ourselves that we don't value revenue enough to be willing to put up with some mistakes in it. But we do value software enough that if some stranger gave me a beta access to his website and the beta was buggy, I wouldn't be pissed at him. I go, that's how you learn to develop. That's how you learn to code. That's how you learn to build a product that everyone's going to love. We tolerate it there. We should tolerate the ads, not for me, not for texting, not for anyone else, but for ourselves, because we keep sending the message to ourselves that this is something we care enough about that we're going to learn is something we care enough about that we understand we don't get it right. And if we give other people freedom to make mistakes, what we do more than anything else is give ourselves freedom to make mistakes too. Right. Well, just to ask one specific question, I mean, how much does it cost you uh, to do a transcript at SpeechPad? You know, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because I don't care. It's so little that I don't care about it. It's so it's a, I mean, as this overall percentage of, of my life, I don't care about it. But you can go to a speech pad and you can see their prices online. I, I believe I don't even know. I believe you can see it. They sent me an invoice just the other day. It was maybe the biggest invoice that I get. Maybe I don't know. It was like a thousand or so odd dollars for a few for a large number of, of programs. You have to understand I do a lot more interviews yeah. than most people. I didn't blink. I thanked her. I sent her a thank you letter saying, "Thank you. I want you to understand. Not only do I am I happy to pay this, but I'm grateful to you for doing this for me. And the reason is before them, I hacked together a mechanical Turk solution." that worked and you can see it in my old interviews you can see that it worked but it was it, it took me forever to put together it had mistakes in it people on mechanical turk would sometimes put one over on me and i wouldn't catch it big nightmare it's hard to do it it's hard to do it every day and get it turned around but it's important to my audience and what i'm discovering is it's important to me too does it help with the seo uh, and people discovering your site through search you know, I don't know. I got to believe it does. I don't know. I don't know how many people come from search engines and how many don't. I don't know. But I'll tell you what it does help me with. And this is something that I do value. I sometimes learn something from an interviewer, from an interview, but I don't remember it. I'm not going to go back and listen to every interview that I'm curious about, but I will go and scan the transcript. Or I will say, hey, that guy's smart. I, you know, I, I don't know that I valued him enough because I was too busy trying to make him look smart in the interview and looking at my notes. Let's go back and read his transcript and I'll find like a paragraph or so that will really change my outlook on things. Like, like my interview with Eric Reese. I haven't listened to it ever since I published it, but I did read the transcript of it afterwards. I read it recently and I remember him saying he had a course to create, not, not a course. Um, he wanted to put on a conference, I think it was. And I said, what did you do first? I said, I just put out a survey. I didn't even know where the conference was. I said, I'm putting this conference on. It's a, it's a fictitious conference, but the audience didn't know it. It was his minimal Bible product. I said, what's the first thing you did? He said, I put together um, a survey. I said, great. Then what did you do afterwards? And he said, well, I put together a deposit. I wanted to know if the survey really mattered. I, and I thought about that. And I said, when I launch something, I do put out a survey. But I forgot what Eric taught me, which is ask 
for the deposit at the end of it to see if people really care. Don't even necessarily, you can take the money, you can not take the money, but you want to see, you want that extra, that extra level of commitment to be confirmed for you. And so when I did that recently and I didn't, I didn't listen to Eric Reese, I thought, huh, I should, I should go back and read those transcripts again. And so the transcripts are really, really, really helpful for me. And that's, that I know, that matters to me more than SEO. The transcripts are really, really important to people like Dharmesh, uh, Dharmesh, uh, Dharmesh Shah, uh, an angel investor who's in my audience, who I value in my audience. And if it's important to him, I don't care if some stranger on, on the web happens to look up uh, Reese's Pieces and ends up on Eric Reese and, and gives me another hit. That's not what my life's about. Right. Reese's Pieces, that'd probably be a good name for a blog for him. <laughs> well, Justin, I, we promised uh, Andrew that we keep it short, and it's been over an hour. Um, Andrew, how are you doing on time? Do you want to? Is this a good time to wrap it up? It's up. You know what? I can go a little bit more if you want. It's actually kind of fun to be on this side of the the conversation. It really is. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> do you, uh, Justin? Do you um? You, well, here I'll, here I'll I'll follow up with this question then. Um, Sure. Okay, so you know you describe yourself as a techie, but you're really more of a business guy in the tech world, right? I mean, you know, wh- how do you view sort of your optimal environment? I mean, do you, are you a hacker news type person, or are you just sort of on the periphery of that? I mean, what do you how do you see I yourself? I call myself a techie because when I went to high school, that's what we were called. I went to Brooklyn Tech, and um, I forget what our, our mascot was, but I think he was a gear or some geeky thing like that. Um, and so if how I identify is with technology. I believe that this technology, all of it, is going to change the world for the better. I don't believe that recycling is going to have the kind of impact on – that me recycling is going to have the kind of impact on my world as Justin working on his web app or, or you, Jason, working on App Ignite. That, I think – is what's really going to change our world. And by the way, I now happen to be in DC. I sat next to someone and I was, and he said, who do you, what do you do? I told him my interview, he said, who do you interview? I said, well, you know, I had the founder of, of, uh, of Twit pick up on my side recently. And I started telling him, he goes, rolls his eyes. And I go, why? He goes, do you really think it has a, any impact on all this Twitter and this Twit pick and these, and these Facebook-y social media ad, apps? And I said, he said, why, why doesn't this country make more stuff? We need to, we need to manufacture things. And I th- said to myself and to him, I want more stuff. I have an apartment here that actually has a hole in the wall that built into it over this, this little fireplace thing where you're supposed to put your TV. You know, we have now holes in our apartments that are designed to hold the stuff that we shovel into our apartments. That's what we want this country to be about. That's what we want our world to be about. More stuff. I want more stuff. Twit pick. When there was when when uh, a plane went down, someone took a picture of it and showed the world what was going on. I, I'd much rather have digital. I'd much rather have virtual stuff than more stuff in my life. And so, that's that's the banner that I fly. I'd rather not have any more things in my life. I loved when um, when um, uh, Runkeeper replaced my digital watch that kept my distance, the, that pedometer that I used. One less piece of garbage for me to have in my life and carry from place to place with me. Now I have my phone with me and it does that. And it does a yeah, bunch well, of other things and I get to toss out more crap because of it. 
I, I, I agree with that completely. I think the, your stuff starts to own you. The more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to maintain, you have to clean, you have to move around, yeah. you have to deal with, and, and it just it becomes oppressive. And I think Paul Graham wrote an article or essay about this a few years yep. ago where he talked about if you look at photographs of families, you know, when they're in the 70s, that, the rooms just seem sparse because they didn't have all the stuff that we have now. And the problem is you come into a room and has all this stuff and, it, and your mind just gets distracted by everything you know it's just it's just too much and i don't even remember how we kind of existed without iphones and without smartphones like what did we even do what are you, what are you talking about <laughs> come on Chad. is that a serious question <laughs> yeah well come it's on. just like you know i mean you know you made phone calls i mean it's like you didn't have to be talking to every, someone constantly you just you meet them you know say hey i'm going to meet you here at this time and you showed up and you interacted there or you called someone and you knew they were going to be there you know I mean, it was fine. I mean, I mean, all this, uh, you know, these things, these technologies like Skype, like iPhones, like, you know, uh, video and things like that, they help us interact more conveniently. But, you know, I don't know. I think there are pluses and minuses to both sides. But I agree in general with what Andrew is saying, which is that the virtual technologies sort of streamline our existences and, and, and make them more efficient and freer, probably. And we think that the rest of the world agrees with us. They don't yet. They still believe that they, that the job of America is to produce. We need to be manufacturers. That the rest of the world, I'm sure, has a similar feel about their about their uh, their countries. I don't want more stuff. It's the tech world that feels this way. But I'll tell you something. It used to be that style came from Hollywood. That I used to have a jacket that looked like Michael Jackson's jacket because anything that Michael Jackson wore, other people wore for a small period. Most of us were dopes for doing it, but anything that, that when when heavy metal was big, all of us wore our hair long. Ditto when uh, rock in the seventies was big. That style came from there. The way we the world look, the world outlook and style and and so much else is coming from the tech world right now. We are the ones who are setting the pace. So it used to be that 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 having a smartphone was dorky and then people in the tech world discovered one that they really love and they started using it and the rest of the world followed along with it and web apps were ridiculous or small computers were ridiculous but we just take them and we evangelize them and we spread the word and and a lot of it a lot of culture a lot of a lot of uh worldviews coming from us from the tech world right right well um so what are your plans to finish this up? What are your plans for Mixer G? I mean, do you have a, a, I mean, I know you started it without a particular goal in mind. Do you have a goal or a vision for it now? I mean, cause you've been doing this for what, almost two years. I don't even know how long, but I've been doing it for a while. My goal is to continue to do these interviews and to continue to I get better and better at pulling things out of people. I get better and better at making my guests comfortable. I, I thought that came naturally. It doesn't. Um, I, I actually interviewed Neil Strauss. I told you I posted the interview with him today. In the middle of the interview, I said, Neil, I don't know if you could tell, but I'm nervous here. And that just broke a lot of the tension. I would never have been able to do it when I was starting out because I didn't feel confident enough to admit where I was in, where I was unconfident. Um, right. And so I get better and better at it and it becomes more useful for my audience and for me too. And the conversation becomes more pleasant. The second thing I want to do is I started this year to do online classes. I said, all right. Wouldn't it be great if the people who I interviewed on Mixergy can come and show us how they do what they do? It's not just do an interview, but to have a full-on class with someone saying, I know you have all this technology. I know you need to know how to do this stuff, but you're not doing it. I'm going to show you right here how to do it. And so we did the first one with the founder of Visual Website Optimizer. 
I said, show me what you've learned about how to do landing pages, but don't just tell me, show me. And don't just tell me and my audience and show, show us. Take the websites that I'm using and creating. Take the websites that my audience used and create and show us on real world websites what needs to change. How do we need to make them more persuasive? How do we need to generate more downloads of our, of our apps or get more people to register for our sites? What are we doing wrong? And it was so tremendously useful that I, I decided I'm going to do more and more of them. Um, and you're going to start to see more of them on Mixergy. So where, where, well, where are those found? I'm, I'm looking sort of in my iTunes catalog of your back. Is it I don't put it on iTunes. Um, I put it up on the website. Okay. It's actually something that you have to pay for. And okay. believe it or not, paying for it actually helped. If And I've done this before when I say I'm going to have an expert on and he's going to take a look at your website, submit your websites, and he'll give you guys feedback, some of you. I got flooded right. with responses most of them, the vast majority of them, are for people who weren't really serious about it, weren't really serious about getting feedback, weren't really serious about building their businesses, weren't really serious about using the feedback. I said, I'm going to charge and I'm going to do it really slowly. I'm not going to allow a lot of people in because I don't want to screw up and take people's money and screw up uh, something that they paid for. Put it up on the site. I sold it out, I think, within 36 hours. Um, but I didn't allow that many people in, so it's not a huge feat. Right. And you should see the sites and the businesses. I happen to know the revenues that these people are bringing in with their businesses because we've had conversations after they bought. And we're talking about guys who have hundreds of thousands of dollars coming in from their websites who, who are taking this seriously because they know that they, they know that it's going to be um, other people in there who are taking the program seriously enough to pay for it, to show up, to, to use what they're going to learn. Right, right. Well, um, Andrew, I think we should probably wrap it up. This has been a great show. It's been really fun having you on. Um, Thanks for having me on. You've given us a lot to think about, and we certainly should be thinking about the whole monetization stuff that you were discussing. Yeah, that's, that was great information. And, and uh, you know, I really do appreciate your show. I listen to quite a few. I don't listen to all of them because five a week um, <laughs> is a lot. I tend to listen to probably at least probably two a week. Um, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of cherry pick the more technical ones, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, they're really good. They're, they're very, uh, useful. And there's still some that I remember to this day that I, I actually almost remember the entire interview, like the one with, um, what's the guy from Smug Mug? Uh, yeah. It was, it was a great story. And the one from guy from Clicky and the, and, uh, I think the Sean Ellis one, I mean, these are some older interviews, but, um, they were, they were and great. the Hootsuite one as well you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. So I've, I've I've listened to a ton of them, but um, they're great. You're doing a great Thank job, you. and I really appreciate you doing it. I think you're doing a great service. So keep. Thank it up, you. Keep I up hope your audience goes out and grabs every single one of them and gets them continuously for free, for free, for free, because they keep coming to the website and downloading everything instantly. Yeah, I, well, I have I have I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners probably already are Mixer G fans, and um, if 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 you're a listener and you haven't uh, given Mixer G a shot, I uh, I encourage you to uh, check out some of his interviews because. They're, uh, they're, they're, he's interviewing a lot of really, uh, really sharp people, really successful entrepreneurs and technologists. It's worth, um, it's worth giving it a shot. So, well, Andrew, uh, thanks again for coming on. We wish you the best of luck with the show. And uh, that's a wrap. We're out. Do you, do you have like a, a kind of army behind you, Andrew? Or do you do a lot of that stuff yourself? Uh, I've got Joe who does the editing. And at this point, I do, I do get a lot of help. Joe does a lot, of, uh, Joe does a lot more than just the editing. And so 
it's easier for me to get these things up and turn them around within a day or so. Yeah, I was going to say that that daily schedule is is awesome. Well, it yeah. sounds very, to me like it sounds to me like you don't necessarily always do a lot of editing. That you just leave leave it in there and you're like screw it. I mean, people the people you'll lose someone for a connection, and you're just like eh. And it doesn't seem to. Yeah, be life got so much better when I listened to Gary, who told me to just don't do any editing. And yeah. I said, all right, if you can get by without it, let me try it. And the show suffers a little bit for it, but it gains so much for me enjoying enjoying it more because I. Uh, because I don't have to suffer through the editing. Yeah, well, you have to. You have to make the show. You, whatever you're doing, you have to make it sustainable, either financially or psychologically or emotionally or whatever. Otherwise, you're just going to quit. In which case, it loses most of its value. So, yeah, yeah I agree with that. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, again, both. thanks for coming on, and uh, best of luck to you. And we'll uh, we'll be in touch. You bet. Thanks. All right, man. Okay, thanks bye. a lot. Bye. bye. <laughs>